Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. As the movie The Frozen Ground opens, you are swiftly taken across the mountainous, cold, and harsh landscape of Alaska before you fly over a ridge to see the city of Anchorage. It reminds you that just outside the hustle and bustle of a nearly 300,000-person city, there is an unrelenting, unforgiving wilderness that can hide death and danger with minimal effort. Every year, thousands of hunters, hikers, and adventurers go missing in the wilderness of Alaska. Outdoorsmanship skills help, but can't always win when it comes to the cliffs, ice, snow, avalanches, tree falls, rivers, creeks, storms, and predators. Home to a variety of bears, wolves, cougars, and even wolverines, it's easy for the hunters to become hunted. And in 1983, there was a hunter that became bored with the monotony of bears and sheep and turned his eyes to the hunting of the greatest game, humans. Unlike most serial killer stories, the chase for a killer in Alaska in the 1980s didn't begin with a lot of bodies being found in a short time and officers recognizing a pattern, i.e. the Green River Killer. Sure, a couple had been found, but they hadn't been connected. It wasn't until a survivor came into the picture that the pieces started to come together. Alaska, while part of the United States, wasn't much more than home to wilderness and indigenous persons until the 1970s. It was then that the oil beneath Alaska's ground started to change the landscape. The local government had approved the Trans-American Pipeline System, or TAPS, which would move oil 800 miles from the northern area of Prudhoe Bay south to Valdez. The approval of the pipeline's construction, the cost of oil rising, the construction workers needed to help build it all, created what would be considered a second gold rush. Alaska, especially the Anchorage area, was suddenly booming with opportunists that saw a chance for a fresh start and to make good money. This was an intersectional desire, crossing all genders and all career choices. From the small businesses created to feed and clothe the workers, the construction workers themselves, and the sex workers there to keep the workers company, it was a busy, transient time for what had been a smaller city in the wildest place on earth. Such big changes at such a fast rate meant it was hard for police to keep up with the goings-on. They struggled to manage the caseloads of missing persons, which had seen an uptick since the 1960s. Being that the people being reported missing were not only adults, but had a history or assumed history of being transient, there was a sense the police were not bothering with missing sex workers, assumed to have gone back south to California, Oregon, or Washington, or a construction worker that was maybe an ex-con or on the lam. Other missing persons were hikers or hunters thought to have succumbed to the elements. They were even harder to find. With over 200 million acres making up 60% of the state, it would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. 
While police would find bodies now and again, it would take the tenacity of multiple detectives across jurisdictions, the courage of a sex worker who survived the murderer's clutches, and the insight of an FBI profile to catch a serial killer and bring some of the missing back home. It was July 12, 1983, and 17-year-old sex worker Cindy Paulson was walking down the street seeking a John. A car pulled to the side, and she looked into the passenger window to have a conversation. Unbothered by the driver's glasses, simple look, and strong stutter, she put her guard down and got in the car, agreeing to a $200 payment in exchange for oral sex. While in the act, the man made a few swift movements, and before Cindy could process what was going on, she was handcuffed and had a gun pointed at her head. Being told she would not be killed if she cooperated, she did just that. Riding along, she took in every detail she could— his looks, his voice, his car, his house, even his address, which she got to see when they arrived to his quaint suburban home. Walking into the house, he said they would be going to his den. Once in his man-caved basement, Cindy took a look at the room. It was full of his hunting trophies. Heads of record-setting mountain goats, skins of bears, and many more pieces of the animals he had taken down with an arrow or bullet had filled the room. It was his place of pride— then she was pulled into a room off the den, a quiet room with a pole. The man took Cindy to the pole and, while leaving the handcuffs on, wrapped a chain around the pole and her arms. Cindy fought as the man raped and tortured her. I hate to use the word torture flippantly, but I was unable to find police reports with the specifics, and every article just says torture. My inference is that it's in regards to the gunpoint kidnapping, chaining, and perhaps the chain at one point had been around her neck. It was the next morning when the man unchained Cindy and took her back to his car. He said they would be going out into the wilderness, but out to the wild was not where they drove. Instead, it was to a small airport. The man pulled up to a hangar that was home to multiple small planes. He got out and started to prep and work on the plane. It was then that a still handcuffed and barely dressed Cindy saw what would probably be her only opportunity for survival. She leapt from his truck and ran, quite literally, for her life. Down a road by the airfield, she heard and was able to flag down a semi-truck. In just her underwear and handcuffs, she frantically told the man she was being chased. The driver took her directly to the police department. Once there, Cindy recounted her harrowing story. Being that this was 1983, some officers didn't believe her story or outright didn't care as she was just a prostitute. But Cindy was an adamant fighter. She shared all the details she had seen and heard. The officers that did believe her drove her to the airfield she claimed to have been taken to. Pointing out the plane, they ran the information to find that it belonged to local businessman Robert Hansen. Robert was brought in for questioning. When presented with the claims made by Cindy, he scoffed, You can rape a prostitute? <gasps> Gross. Yeah. That was a sentiment not only shared with some of the officers working the case, but with a lot of people still to this day. And if you feel that way, shut up. Think of it this way. Just because you're friends with a doctor doesn't mean you can go over and have dinner and force them to perform surgery. Police looked into Robert. Not only did he fit Cindy's description of him, but his house matched Cindy's details as well. She had obviously been to his home, but that isn't a crime. Digging into his personal history, it didn't take long for officers to see that his criminal history showed dangerous and destructive behaviors, along with a proclivity for violence against women. 
Born in Iowa on February 15, 1939, to a Danish immigrant, Robert struggled through his youth. His father was overbearing and strict. He had horrible acne and a stutter that caused not only internal turmoil, but affected his ability to socialize. Eventually, he enrolled in the military, but that only lasted one year. In 1960, he married a younger woman, but it wouldn't be for long. Perhaps it was his undiagnosed bipolar disorder or other contributing factors, but Robert felt he had been wronged by the people, especially women, in his community. Those feelings were harbored mostly towards his school years, so at 21 years old, in December of 1960, he convinced a 16-year-old that worked with him at his father's bakery to help him burn down the local bus barn, which they did. The 16-year-old, not being driven by old vendettas, turned himself and Robert into authorities. Robert was sentenced to three years in prison, which were served at a reformatory. Once the sentence came down, so did the divorce papers, and his first marriage was over. Paroled early, he only served 20 months of his sentence before being released. During his time, a psychologist declared Robert had an infantile personality, which was what led him to becoming obsessed with vengeance and harboring anger towards others. Being single didn't last long. It was only a few months after being released that Robert remarried. He also started to show signs of being a kleptomaniac, and he was stealing just for fun. He was caught a few times, but not charged. In 1967, be it that he wanted a new start or was running away from something, he up and moved himself, his two children, and wife to Alaska. There he followed in his father's footsteps by opening his own bakery. Not only did he own his own business, he was a record-setting, trophy-winning hunter. No matter what he set his sights on, bears, mountain sheep, no matter the means, arrow or gun, he would win and had won against all his prey. He was on record for the largest mountain goat taken down with a bow and arrow. It was a hobby that Alaska allowed to become a passion. It was in 1972 that Hansen was arrested again this time for the abduction and attempted rape of a receptionist and assault with a deadly weapon. He pled no contest. Soon after, he followed a young woman home and attempted to rape her, but she was able to escape. Given a reduced charge, he only served six months. This went against the recommendations of the mental health team that felt Robert was a danger and unstable. In 1976, he was again picked up, this time for shoplifting, of all things, a chainsaw. He was sentenced to five years in prison for larceny, but an appeal turned the case over. The Alaska Supreme Court even said that his sentence was, quote, too harsh. But chainsaw? I know. The, the least shopliftable thing? What's that under your shirt, sir? <laughs> Not the brightest bulb. Oh, the question is, what was he doing with it? Did he... Okay, so he's a kleptomaniac. At that point, he'd been arrested twice for it? No, that was the first time the he first was arrested time. for the kleptom for the stealing. It's just such a bold item to Very. try to steal. Very. Yes. It, I my first guess would be he didn't want a record of buying a chainsaw because he was going to do something with it, but that's because oh, I know how this story ends. Okay. Interesting, but I mean, spoilers, it doesn't come into play. <laughs> I know. But you would think. Yeah, I don't know why he went with the chainsaw. I guess cuz that's cool. Where'd you get that? I stole it. Maybe. Besides, now he was Bob, Bob the baker, Bob who made donuts that brought all the cops in, Bob who had a wife and children, who was an upstanding businessman and a member of the community, Bob who had hunting buddies that trusted and befriended him. Then came Cindy, 
Her account matched his track record, but the officers knew as well as anyone that not only did they have no proof of her being in his home that night, but a he said, she said, including a sex worker, would not go in their favor. Besides, Robert had an alibi. Two of his friends had stated to officers that he had been with them the night of Cindy's attack. The reason it was friends giving the alibi and not his family? Conveniently, or coincidentally, his wife and children were away on a summer vacation in Europe. Police decided to put a 24-hour surveillance on him, but nothing came of it. He just was at home, went to work, home and work. Nothing out of the ordinary. Given her understandable hesitancy to work with police, Cindy refused to take a polygraph, even after picking Robert out of a lineup. Eventually, with no evidence, the case would be dropped and the officers were asked to work on other cases. That didn't sit well with officers Maxine Farrell and Greg Baker. They put in the groundwork before the case was pulled that would cause a domino effect they never expected. Before Cindy and Robert came into the picture, state troopers had been dealing with different cases that they never dreamed could have been related. Between hikers, hunters, mafia, yes, I learned Alaska has the mafia, and random killings, bodies are discovered in the wilderness throughout Alaska from time to time. One such incident occurred on July 21, 1980, three years before Cindy would survive to tell her story. Powerline workers were on a service road known only to hunters and workers. There, they found a body in a shallow grave. For the most part, animals had had their way with the remains, but clothing, some turquoise jewelry, the skull, and some ribs remained. It was assumed by officers to be the body of a young woman, probably a sex worker. But how in the world would she end up on this random, unknown road? Upon autopsy, there were markings found on the remaining bones to indicate she had been stabbed multiple times. Unable to find anyone in the missing persons database that matched her remains, a forensic anthropologist was able to create a face on top of the skull. The picture of the young indigenous woman, now dubbed Iklutna Annie, was sent all around the area, shown to local sex workers and even aired on the local news. No one called to ID her. Continuing to work on the case of Annie, officers dug deeper into the missing person cases to see if there was anyone that matched Annie's description, but they noticed there was a trend over the last few years in which more and more dancers and sex workers were reported missing than usual. Can I ask what made them think she was a sex worker right away? It's my understanding from one of the interviews I saw that due to her clothing, so just it wasn't your average pedestrian clothing, it Got was it. more conducive to a sex worker. That makes sense. Detective Maxine Farrell called other jurisdictions to see if they had any cases that were similar to Annie's or more missing girls than usual. It was when she contacted the state troopers that she learned of a case that sounded eerily similar. Three weeks earlier, on July 8, 1980, in Seward, Alaska, 150 miles south of Iklutna, highway maintenance workers were digging and came across a body in a shallow grave. They left the scene to contact authorities, but by the time everyone came back to the body, a bear had sniffed it out and started to consume it. <sighs> Police didn't want to lose all of their evidence, so they shot and killed the bear. After neutralizing the threat, it was found to have been the body of a young, naked woman who was wrapped in a moldy sleeping bag. As with the other cases, there was no ID, and she was taken in for autopsy when it was found that she had been shot with a two twenty three caliber rifle, the shell of which was found at the scene. A two twenty three rifle is a hunting rifle, a rifle with power that far exceeds that which you would need to wound a human. 
The victim's fingerprints were run and found to be a match for Joanna Messina from Seward, Alaska. She was a sex worker in the area and had last been seen by her friends. She told them that she had met a man that was going to take her on a shopping spree. So off she went, and she was never seen again. While these two cases were similar in some respects, there was no evidence to connect them to each other. Then, two years later, on September 13, 1982, two off-duty police officers were hunting at the Kinnick River when they came across a body in a shallow grave. It was noted that she had been shot in the back three times with a .223 caliber bullet, the casing of which was, just as in the other case, found at the scene. It was also noted that there were no holes in her clothing. This meant that she was naked when she was shot, then someone went through the trouble of dressing her. There was also bandaging wrapped around her head. This led officers to believe that it had been used as a blindfold. Eventually, she was identified as 23-year-old Sherry Morrow. Her boyfriend had reported her missing 10 months prior to her body being discovered. He was diligent about staying on top of the efforts made to find her. She was a dancer and waitress, and he didn't want her to be forgotten. So he went to the station every week to ask detectives if there had been any new developments. While she was ID'd as Sherry, there was a critical piece of her identity missing. She had a gold arrowhead necklace that she was known to have never taken off. The family requested its return when her body was found, but the necklace was not with her. Ballistics took the casings from both scenes and processed them. They were a match. Now officers knew these were more than coincidences. They had a potential serial killer on their hands. I wonder why he dressed her. Like, that's a lot of work on, you know... And what's well, it's the, a crude saying, but dead weight. I mean, that's a lot of work to completely yeah, redress. And what is the point? Yeah, it's I'm, very. Particular. I'm unfortunately going to think about it's that. It's very for peculiar. A while. It's very odd. It's you know, is that a time thing to show off that you know that could be you know no one's going to come around that you're so isolated? Is it a because you have weird things with women and it could be covered or more of a shame? I don't. I don't know. That's interesting. September 2nd of 1983, a pair of hunters were setting up their camp for the night in an area by the Kinnick River that was only accessible by boat or plane. As they did, they discovered partial remains. Police arrived and processed the scene, but the decomposition was bad. It was thought she had been there for about five to six months, during which animals and the elements had had their way. Besides skeletal remains and clothing, a .223 caliber shell was found. It was also a match to the other two. The remains were identified as 30-year-old dancer Paula Goulding. She had been reported missing in April of that year, just five months earlier. She had told her friends she was going out on a date, but never came home. The autopsy found she had been shot in the back. Detective Glenn Floth had been assigned to the Kinnick River cases. He had also received a package from Officer Baker, Officer Baker had never stopped working on Cindy's case and knew there were other cases that fit the pattern. Detective Floth recognized the similar circumstances and knew that this profile matched the man that had attacked Cindy, Robert Hansen, but they still had no proof. As officers began to look over Cindy's case and the cases of the murders at the river, they sent officers out to the areas of Anchorage the victims had worked, and they provided information on how to stay safe and be more cautious than usual, hoping they could help save lives. 
With the MO and bullet casings matching, law enforcement knew they were now dealing with their first known Alaskan serial killer. For help, they brought in the FBI. Starting with what they felt would be the most helpful, they provided the information needed to get a profile of who the FBI thought this person could be. FBI profiler John Douglas arrived. To understand the criminal, you must look at the crime. Compiling the murders, burials, and rituals, he was able to create a comprehensive profile of who he thought would be killing these women. The profile stated that this man was probably one to go unnoticed, that he would be a man of the community, probably a business owner so he could be in charge of his own schedule. He would have probably started with smaller crimes, like arson and animal abuse, and would learn to function in society while his perversions festered. Growing up, this person probably struggled due to reasons outside of his control to make social connections, especially with the opposite sex. Women reminded him of his failures and caused him to feel angry towards them. This might have come from something like acne or a speech impediment like a stutter. This led to him wanting to control his life, so the outdoors made sense for a location. This person was very probably a hunter and felt at home outdoors. This was his territory. He would frequent the area and was local. He was in control. All of that came only from the crime scenes, not from Cindy's reports, not from meeting the suspect of the kidnapping and rape, just a psychological evaluation of the scenes. In a Hail Mary, officers decided to revisit the alibis that were given for Robert the night of Cindy's attack. They did not mince words with Robert's friends. They made it known that this alibi was covering something very serious and that if they were found in a court of law to have been lying, they would face charges. They were asked to really think about whether or not it was worth going to prison for their friend. Very quickly, both men started to crack and admit they had not been with Robert that night and that he had asked them to cover for him. They claimed to have done it in the first place because Robert said he was having an issue with a sex worker and being that he was married, they didn't want there to be any issues. With the alibis gone, there was now enough probable cause to issue search warrants. Robert was at home when approached by officers who asked him to come with them for some questioning. He complied, unaware that at the same time, officers were going to his bakery and coming to his house to search for any clues connecting him to Cindy or the women found in the woods. The officers moved in, top priority being to find the room Cindy had described having been chained in. They went downstairs to the den, a.k.a. trophy room, and it was just as she'd said. Skins and heads adorned every surface, but there was no metal pole like the one she claimed. Meanwhile, Robert was being brought into an interrogation room that had been decorated just for him. Maps with marks where bodies were found, crime scene photos, missing person flyers, and identification photos plastered the walls he was forced to look at. Cool and calm, Robert denied having anything to do with any of the bodies found, and he said he didn't recognize any of the women. Back at the house, an officer was inspecting the paneling on the wall of the den when he noticed one of the panels was actually a door. He pushed it open to reveal a secret soundproof room with a pole in the middle of it. A pole that had paint with scratches all over it as though a chain had been wrapped around it. Again, it all matched Cindy's account, but it still didn't make for evidence. They moved to the bedroom where, in his headboard, they found a map of the area. On it were X's. In I'm sorry. In his headboard? Yes. Well, like um, old school. My parents had one of these, like the old headboards that had like Oh, right. Cabinets. The back. Yeah. Oh, that's right. A lot of people have yeah, those. Yeah. Where you could like pull and that's where you'd put your books. I just think of mine. It's just, and, yeah. 
But I, I've totally forgot too. But in the eighties, that was a thing where you yeah. have like the little roll away cat, almost like a miniature closet door on your right. headboard. And so in there, they found this map. And on that map were twenty one X's. <gasps> Officers that had been working the case recognized four of the marks right away and knew that the X's stood for where bodies had been hastily buried. Wow, what a discovery. Mm-hmm. But you can't go to trial on a map. They needed more. They needed the murder weapon. They continued the search, eventually ending up in the attic. At first, there was nothing. Then an officer lifted some of the insulation. Confused at first, they couldn't understand why Darla would store some of her jewelry in the attic under the insulation. Mm -hmm. Then it hit them. This was his other trophy room. Looking through the rings, watches, and necklaces, they found the arrowhead on a chain as described by Sherry Marrow's boyfriend, the one she would never take off. They continued to rip up the insulation when they hit pay dirt. Under another panel, a two twenty three caliber rifle. It was rushed to forensics, and soon they had their answer. The rifle found in Robert's house was a match for the rifle that had fired the bullets, killing the women they had found. While nothing had come from the initial questioning, there was soon an arrest warrant issued, and he was picked up. While being interviewed for hours with detectives and the district attorney, Robert and his lawyer weren't giving them any information. He just presented his usual calm, mild-mannered demeanor. But they wanted more than just the evidence. They wanted a confession and to know where the other bodies were. There was no telling how reckless he was when marking the X's, so being off by just a centimeter on the map could mean hundreds of wild country acres to be searched. Eventually, the DA had had enough and popped off. Pointing out all the evidence, he started yelling, We have the map. We're taking dogs to the spots and we're going to get you for every case. It was then that the officer and DA noticed a change in Robert. His face turned red. The hair on his neck stood up. He was described as being rageful. His voice got low and quiet when he said to himself, Dirty fucking whores. <gasps> Once again, blaming the women in his life for his poor decisions. Then he made a deal. He pled guilty to four of the victims, giving a full confession, but it didn't end there. He confessed to a total of 17 victims and agreed to take police out to find the rest of the bodies. All in all, they were able to bring 14 girls home to their families for a proper farewell. Once learning all of the details of Robert's crimes, police were able to paint a picture of what he did. From placing personal ads in the paper to promising dates or shopping sprees and even going into the strip clubs to offer to take girls' pictures, Robert would lay a trap for the vulnerable women he felt wouldn't be looked for if they went missing. He would then handcuff them, hold them at gunpoint, and take them to the secret room in his house. After chaining them up for the night, he would use his private plane to fly them deep into the wild lands of Alaska. Blindfolding and undressing them, he would then let them go in an area he was familiar with. Terrified, naked, blind, and running for their lives, the women would do what little they could to get away from this monster. Finding pride in his hunting abilities, he would allow for the head start before catching up to his prey, and, like he would do with his prized goats and bears, he would get them in his sights and shoot them in the back. Knowing he was so deep in the woods and the areas were not only secluded but ripe with predatory animals, he would dig a shallow grave and drag their bodies into it. Before putting dirt on top of them, he would remove something special, another trophy. Those pieces of jewelry were his own personal keepsake of what he felt were his greatest hunting accomplishments. In Robert's path of destruction, he left his wife and children to fend for themselves against the scrutiny of the press and neighbors. 
He left his children fatherless. He left his employees jobless. But most importantly, he left a ripple of death and despair that has affected not only the 17, if not up to 21 women whose lives he stole, but their friends and families. One victim, Tammy Peterson, was identified after Robert's confession. She was a dancer that had been missing a year and a half. Her brother had to learn she had been murdered by hearing her name on the evening news. The opening remarks of the Anchorage Superior Court sentencing by the DA were, Before you sits a monster. And he was right. A cowardly monster that in March of 1984 was sentenced to 461 years plus life with no chance of parole. Robert Hansen died of natural causes on August 21, 2014. He was 75 years old. He now lays in an unmarked grave, an ending not even close to suitable for a pathetic human such as himself. While it is speculated that for over a decade Robert Hansen murdered 21 women, we will never know the true number or how many missing women in the Anchorage area could be attributed to him. But I don't want him to be remembered for that. I want the name Robert Hansen to be synonymous with coward. 17 women were identified as his victims. Of those 17 women, Hansen was only formally charged with the murders of four of them, Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Ecluda Annie, and Paula Goulding. He was also charged with the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson. These were the victims that he acknowledged killing and helped officers to find. Lisa Futrell, 41, Malai Larson, 28, Sue Luna, 23, Tammy Peterson, 20, Angela Federn, 24, Teresa Watson, DeLynn Sugar Frey. Her body was discovered on August 20th, 1985 by a pilot who was testing new tires on the sandbar of the Kinnick River. Paula Goulding, Andrea Fish Alterly, who was somewhere between the ages of 22 and 25. She was missing on December 2nd, 1981. He admitted to killing her, but her body has not been found. Ikluta Annie, who was between the ages of 16 to 25. She was killed between November of 1979 and June of 1980. He did admit to killing her, and she was one of the bodies that was found, but to this day, her identity has never been discovered. Joanna Messina, Horseshoe Harriet, who was killed in the late 70s or early 80s. He acknowledged that he killed her, and the body was found with his help, but her true identity was never discovered. Roxanne Eastland was 24, went missing June 28, 1980. He acknowledged that he killed her, but the body was never found. Cecilia Beth Van Zanten, 17. He denied killing her, but it was suspected because of an X on the aviation map, and her body was found where it was marked. Megan Emmerich, 17, missing July 7, 1973. He denied killing her, but suspected because of an X on the map, but her body was not found. Mary Thill, 22, went missing July 5, 1975. He denied having anything to do with her, but was suspected because of an X on the map, and her body has not been found. And all of those victims are just in Alaska. There is no telling when his hunting desires changed from animal to human. There are thoughts that he may have committed similar murders in Iowa, which is why he moved so far away, or he knew he couldn't hold off any longer and the Alaskan wilderness would provide a perfect hunting ground for him. It is stories like those of these women lost to the hands of this man that bring me back to always wanting to do episodes around sex workers and indigenous women. They are portrayed, viewed, and treated as less than human by not only pathetic monsters like Robert Hansen, but so often by our police officers, media, and overall culture. 
What someone looks like or chooses to do with their bodies should not denote their value as a human. There shouldn't be any type of person, besides child molesters, obviously. Obviously. That are deemed unmissable by predators or unworthy of safety. I don't know what the answer is or how to better monitor sex workers to help in managing their safety, but I hope someone can come up with one. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology now on Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get podcasts. We're joined today by forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Johnston has used her skills as a forensic psychologist to assist on parole boards, in prisons, and in the Superior Court of San Diego. You may have seen her as a consultant on Oxygen's Mark of a Killer or heard her podcast, Thread of Evidence. She is also the author of five self-help and idiot guides books. Dr. Johnston, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. So could you walk us through the process of creating a profile for a potential serial killer, what the most useful information is when starting out? Well, I think a lot of times if they're, first thing, of course, police officers look for is some physical evidence that links crimes together. So they're looking for DNA evidence. They're looking for fingerprints. They're looking for some, again, physical evidence. Even if that's the case, they're also going to be looking at the behavior of the perpetrator at the crime scenes. And so the biggest clue, I think, in terms of looking for a serial killer is looking for behaviors that are distinct enough that they're different from other offenders, but consistent enough across crime scenes to suggest that it's the same murderer. In particular, I think what we look for sometimes are what we call rituals, and these are things that aren't necessary to kill the person, but they serve some psychological need. So that might be binding a victim, it might be torturing a victim, it might be posing the body in a certain way, um, make, it might be having the victim say something, it can be a lot of different things, but it's something, again, that's not necessary to kill that person, but it's something that's, that the killer needs psychologically. I saw you on the show Mark of a Killer, and you were talking about the Robert Hansen case. Can you talk about how you became involved with his story? Well, I really think of myself as a serial killer researcher in a lot of respects. I've worked in a maximum security prison, as you said, and I've actually encountered a couple of serial killers inside of a prison. But I also do a lot of serial, a lot of research um, and violent behavior and violence risk assessment. And so serial killing is something that's an area of interest to me. And so I was very familiar with this case. And so Mark of a Killer, I've done a lot, several episodes for Oxygen, and they knew that I had done some research on that case. And so they asked me to come on and talk about it. Can I ask why serial killers specifically? Why does that interest you? I just became interested in serial crimes when I was 14 years old. I was on a family vacation and for some unknown reason, my parents let me read a book about Charles Manson. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know why, but um, they did. My and mom, the rest is history. <laughs> exactly. It really is. Um, I have to say my mom, uh, you know, was always also interested in true crime, and I'm not sure why that is as well, but there are lots of theories as to why people think true crime is so interesting, but I read Helter Skelter at 14, and I just became very interested in trying to understand why particularly someone would hurt a stranger. And then in high school, Ted Bundy Bundy escaped from a Colorado prison and he ended up murdering some women and the young women in the Cuyamaga sorority house in Tallahassee, Mm -hmm. which was about 80 miles from my house. And at the time they thought that he was selecting a certain victim kind of the common knowledge was that he liked younger, attractive, thin women with long, dark hair parted in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't attest to my level of attractiveness at the time, but I, <laughs> I can say that my hair was dark and parted in the middle. And oh, so yeah. I, so you fit kind of that profile that everyone thought he had. Exactly. Now, I will, let me just add to that quickly that, um, you know, he himself later denied that he had any specific interest in, in girls with long, dark hair. He just said his only the victim selection was if they were, in his in his words, relatively attractive. But, at, mm-hmm. but and I think there were a ton of women at the time who wore their hair in that particular way. But that was something that again also was kind of was kind of personal to me. It was very scary. It was kind of intriguing. And again, again, I just couldn't understand why someone would be interested in hurting people that they had never met before or had done nothing to them. So in your studies of the Robert Hansen story, what kind of stands out to you the most about his story and the story of his victims? I think the most obvious thing that stands out about Robert Hansen is the way that he hunted his victims. I mean, he really did take what seemed to be a hobby of his. He was a big game hunter. He started hunting in his early teens, I think probably as a way to cope with a lot of anger and resentment he felt, and also a way to cope with some of the social isolation that he felt at the time. And he really, you know, took to it and really took a lot of pleasure in hunting and getting better at it. He had actually had a couple of, I think, um, records for certain big games, some mm-hmm. big sheep. He had managed to kill what was at the time thought to be the largest big game sheep or whatever. And this is somebody who literally took this avocation to a whole nother level. Just about anybody could put themselves in that situation and just imagine how horrifying. And apparently with some of his victims, he would hunt them for days at a time. And and what was also, I think, particularly chilling is the fact that he would not only be taking them somewhere that he was very familiar with and in which they had no idea where they were or how to get out, but he would also stack the deck in his favor in so many other ways. So for example, some of the women were blindfolded Mm -hmm. at the time that he set them loose. And also the fact that they were nude and he, you know, he shot some of them in the back. So this is really somebody who obviously is not interested in any kind of real contest, right? Of wills. Right. Or, yeah, exactly. You know, he's, think, he's thinking, oh, I'm hunting the greatest game of human, but you've really just handicapped it so extremely. It's, it's bizarre. It is. It really is. And it's just, you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, there's no question that a lot of people are interested in serial murder and I understand that. And I study this a lot, but I, I would be the first to say that serial killers are not courageous. But they are always going to stack the deck, you know, in their favor. And they're not really looking for somebody who can be a match for them. They're not mm-hmm. looking for a test of wheels. They're looking for somebody that they can do whatever they want to with. 
So he admitted to the 17 murders and they were able to find 14 of those girls. There are not rumors, but ideas that perhaps his total number is closer to 21. In your studying of his case, do you have an idea of what his number is? And do you think he waited until he was in Alaska to, to start? Or do you think he maybe did things back in Iowa? You know, Alaska per capita has had the large, the most number of serial killers. And there's lots of potential hypotheses for that. But I think certainly his criminal behavior started before then. He had a history of arson. And as you probably know, spent a couple of years in prison for that outside of Alaska. But I think he probably started his killing career in Alaska because that was such an ideal place for him in terms of what he wanted to do. And in terms of, of the question about his victim count, I know they found that map um, tucked away with the trophies that he kept from some of the women. And there were 21 marks on that map. And I know that they found some victims where some of those marks were. So it certainly suggests that his victim count is probably closer to 21 than to 17. And he doesn't strike me as somebody who was particularly careless. He was pretty methodical in how he set up these murders and these abductions. And, um, and so it's hard for me to think that he would somehow lose count of the number of victims that he had. It did kind of strike me as odd. There were, I think, one or two bodies that were found where X's had been, but he denied it. Did you find any information on that or did that strike you out of character for him? No, it doesn't strike me as out of character. I don't know that I can answer that too much, Alicia, because I'm not that familiar with that. I would say that, you know, even the most methodical uh, killer, I think, becomes confident over time or overly confident sometimes. You know, there seems to be this common myth sometimes that serial killers want to get caught on some level because so many of them get captured for these stupid reasons, like a parking ticket, hmm. you know, or, some, or something like that. But I think that it's not so much that they want to get caught. I don't think most serial killers ever want to get caught. I think what happens is they become overly confident and they start making mistakes. I'm not sure that he just didn't remember where those women were. I think it's probably more an issue of a memory lapse than anything psychological. An actual or, denial. An, yeah, an actual denial. Interesting. Yeah. And that's an interesting take too on the wanting to get caught because I think, I think that idea is kind of comforting to people. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to be doing this. They want to get caught so it can end. So that's an interesting take to say that it's more, they just get careless because they've been getting away with it so long. I think that's, that, I think that's true. I actually did some research recently about, you know, has there ever been a serial killer who wanted to get caught or turned himself in? And there actually have been a couple who have turned themselves in because they wanted to stop. But that is so rare. Hmm. Um, given, and, and I do think that, you know, most of the time it's the fact that they start, they start thinking that, you know, I can, Hey, look, I've gotten away with this for so long. Right. And they just become careless. It's like this hedonistic adaptation into not worrying about these things and kind of upping the ante each time. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. I think that's the other part of it too. And of course, serial killers really differ in how impulsive they are. So there are serial killers who will, you know, they have this ideal victim in mind and they'll spend hours looking for the ideal person. I think when you look at victims, for example, and you find individuals who pick vulnerable victims, particularly 30 years ago, I think it's not uncommon. And there probably is some common sense truth to the fact that if I'm picking victims such as sex workers, I might not be as confident in my ability to persuade other women 
to come with me. And so that would, would kind of might lead to somebody believing oh, this person doesn't have very good social skills or might not be particularly, particularly good with women. Whereas you look at Ted Bundy, who, you know, was very skilled socially and picked women who, you know, we would never think would necessarily would get killed, would, would be killed by a serial killer. These are women in college or girls in college. So I think that's less true now because, because access to victims, I think, is narrowed you find that up to 40% of all serial killer victims now are sex workers. It's increased. But I think 30 years ago, I think the prevailing belief was you can look at a victim and how, depending on how vulnerable she is, that might have something to do with how skilled or unskilled that perpetrator is in terms of interacting, approaching and persuading women to go with him. I had not known, or I didn't know that, the number of victims being sex workers had increased. Is that due to technology and communication that people are in contact with each other so much more that it's kind of harder to have victims disappear? You know, there's so many different theories. And I think the bottom line is that certainly is part of it. I mean, that's the, one of the prevailing theories is that we, there are a lot of riskier behaviors that most people don't engage in anymore. So, for example, when is the last time you went hitchhiking you know, or, right. or knew anybody who went hitchhiking, which back in the 70s and 80s was a pretty common. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think growing up, certainly, um, you know, we would we would leave the house as children and come back at dusk. Our parents would call us, you know, be back by dark, mm-hmm. whereas now parents want to know where their kids are all the time. They want to make sure they have their cell phones. So I think it is harder. Some of those behaviors, um, you know, that, that probably made it easier for mm-hmm. serial killers to operate have gone away. And I think, and of course, then you have, you're right, that technology and people are staying in more touch and people have GPSs on their phone. I think people in general are more safety conscious. And then my daughter's in college and I'm always telling her, you know, if you go somewhere, let make sure that your roommate knows where you're going and when you're going to be back. And of course, you know, of course, what I do does influence that for sure. Uh, Yeah, I would think so. (laughs) But I think, you know, I have friends who don't do what I do and they're also very, you know, kind of very safety conscious with their kids. So I think, I think because of that, some of the behaviors that unwittingly, of course, put people more at risk or uh, for a, a serial killer have gone away. And as a result, I do think that that's one of the reasons that we see an increase in victim choice of people who are more vulnerable. What are kind of your thoughts on anything that can be done to kind of help, you know, I, I, we've already recorded the full episode and I end with it just saying it would be really great to come up with something to be able to help kind of monitor these women, not in a legal matter, but just a safety matter. Do you have any thoughts on that through your years of research? That's such a good ending point. And I just, I'm so happy to hear that. I look forward to hearing that episode because I've also been thinking the exact same thing, Alicia, kind of wondering about that. I know that there are some organizations who are um, trying to focus on safety. You know, one of the biggest, I think, and we can talk about the pros and cons of that, or is just the fact that, you know, there's a huge push among some groups to legalize Mm -hmm. sex work, just because there's the whole idea that if that was the case, then you would have a lot more safe, you know, a lot more options. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And you know, for understandable reasons to some extent. So given that, I do think that a lot more, there's a lot more effort to educate 
people who are in vulnerable occupations, whether that's exotic dancing or whether that's sex working or, or other ones, is to educate them about working in pairs, about, you know, having a driver if you go somewhere, about, the, you know, there's these um, bad date list mm-hmm. that some neighborhoods will keep, neighborhoods meaning, you know, area high, what do you, red light districts, I guess. Yeah. Is, I don't, I'm sure there's a better word for that. I don't know what it is. Um, so I think there is, is more awareness. And also, and I think this is huge, and I do hope you touch on this in your show, is I think, hopefully, and I do believe this is true, I think the attitude among law enforcement is changing. Mm. Because I think that was a huge barrier. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I did some research on the Sam, Samuel Little case. And I don't know if you're familiar with Samuel Little, who was the I'm not. He's now apparently the most prolific serial killer in the United States. So he was, he in 2018 confessed to 93 murders. And have you, I'm he's sure you've heard of him. South. He's in the South, right? Well, he's now in Texas, but he was in prison in California. He okay. killed, I, don't, I know this, this is not your show, so I don't want to oh, go gosh, off with the, whole, no, that's your- the whole Samuel Little thing. You're like, that's not our show. But the, the, the only we'll reason- put it, We'll put it on our Patreon. We'll be like, hey, more information yeah. over here. But the only reason I bring it up is because he was actually tried for a murder in, in, um, in Florida. And he was acquitted- of this murder, which he clearly committed and has confessed to, because the jury did not believe the, the witness who was a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And that was just infuriating to me. Yeah. Because, and, and, and unfortunately, that really was the prevail, you know, a prevailing belief, I think, sometimes, is that if you are in a certain occupation or you're in a vulnerable group, somehow you aren't credible. Mm-hmm. And in reality, I think, particularly 20 years or 30 years ago, you were less likely to get help or try to get some kind of resolution if you were victimized. So yes. for somebody to be willing to get up on the stand and talk about, you know, their friend's murder, you know, if anything to, in today, looking back probably argues for this person's credibility. But I do think that that's a huge shift. And I do think that there's been a shift in law enforcement toward realizing that number one, everybody enters sex working for different reasons. And there's a very diverse group. So we can't lump everybody and say, this is just because this person has, is in this chosen occupation right now, tells us anything about this person's credibility or trustworthiness or whether they're a good person or not or whatever. So I do think that they're starting to realize that there's a huge diversity and also that individuals have rights and they, just because you're in a, in a vulnerable group doesn't mean you deserve anything, something bad happens to you. You deserve justice. Yeah. And that was a pretty big point in this case, you know, with Cindy Paulson, how they knew they couldn't really go to court just based off her accusations because, you know, his response of you can rape a prostitute. Yeah. Even the term sex worker alone and starting to see that more and more often and hear that more often. So I think there is kind of the ideas are starting to change, but I do think you're right that it's going to take a long time and be an uphill battle, but hopefully that starts to change because look at the lives that can be saved. You're right. And, 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 you know, a lot of serial killers, unfortunately, are aware that that's been the prevailing attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been plenty of serial killers who said, yeah, I picked this group because nobody would miss them mm-hmm. or, or police wouldn't care if this happened or whatever. So I think that is going to, that is just going to be a huge, and I'm so thrilled that in your episode, you're going to be talking about that because that was just infuriating to me. It really is yeah. something that is just difficult for me as a woman and as a professional 
to think that we would make any assumptions about somebody's credibility or truthfulness or whatever. Or worth. Because, or, or worth, yes, or worth just because of a, of a, a behavior they're engaged in for whatever reason. Do you have a case that's kind of your, I hate to use the word favorite, but one that I guess is most interesting to you or that you think of often? I mean, the Robert Hansen case, I have to say, when I read that case and prepared for that case, I was kind of blown away just for those reasons that we talked about. I think I'm always interested in they're pretty rare and I don't want to, I certainly don't want to contribute to any myth about the link between mental illness and violence, but there've been a few serial killers who have acted because they were under delusions, such as mm. Herbert Mullins, who thought that the, he had to kind of essentially sacrifice people to avoid this catastrophic earthquake. Mm -hmm. So as a psychologist, I'm always pretty interested in looking at those kind of cases. Lori Vallow yeah. and Char Chad Daybell. I mean, I did a couple, I have a, a YouTube channel called Unmasking a Murderer. And what I do is I'll take a case and I try to take that case as a starting point for then talking about a psychology topic. Oh, so it's okay. not just a true crime. It is a true crime channel. But so for example, in the Lori Vallow case recently, I talked about the fact that, you know, okay, these beliefs that she apparently had, could these, are these extreme religious beliefs or could they be actual delusions mm. for, you know, from mental illness? And I kind of go into the difference between those. Interesting. Um, I'll have to check that out. I think, I mean, I'm getting, it's, it's pretty new and I have no idea what I'm doing, uh, but it's so fun. I have such a passion for talking about and psychology that's all topics. That matters. <laughs> well, I, it's a starting place. That's what I always say. Um, so, I, you know, that, that certainly isn't my quote favorite case. It's an ongoing case and it could potentially be such as you know, such a horribly tragic case, mm -hmm. but there are so many different parts of that case that I really stayed away from it for a few months, even though people kept asking me to talk about it. And then I found some, um, you know, some, I guess, psychological parts that I thought were interesting. And I, right now I'm researching the Long Island serial killer case and I'm looking at it from the angle of, you know, what would convince savvy women who knew that this was kind of risky behavior, what would convince them to leave their cell phones at home? Mm. And not to have a driver. And then I use that kind of to go into, you know, essentially, what should you do if, you know, if you were captured by a serial killer, what are your, what are the odds? Mm. You know, how, how could you best survive? And that kind of relates to this case a little bit, Alicia, in that if you look statistically, there was a German researcher, a criminologist who did a, a huge research study in Germany looking at serial killers and looking at their victims and the ones who had escaped. And he was trying to answer the whole question about, you know, what are the, what are the, what are your best odds basically? Mm, right. In other words, if serial killer tries to get you, what are your best odds? And of course, not surprisingly to you and me, he found out that your best odds are before you ever are in the car. Yeah. In other, you know, right. So even if somebody's pointing a gun at your head and saying, get in the car, I'm going to kill you. You're probably statistically better off you know, taking your chances and running in a zigzag line and screaming your head off than you are getting in the car thinking I'm going to, you know, escape later on. Well, he did find that, okay, what if you're in, you know, the 15.5% who did escape once they were there, how did they do it? Mm -hmm. And one of the factors was this massive resistance. In other words, in, a, in some cases, victims like, and he said, not mild resistance, but I mean, biting, kicking, screaming, just this massive physical and psychological resistance were able to escape. But 
some the downside of that was if it failed, then you escalated it more, right? Violence escalated uh-huh. in that situation. So your odds of getting away were better because there were zero otherwise, right? So any mm-hmm. odds are better than zero, but the, the violence would escalate. But he also found in his, he interviewed like over a hundred serial killers. He found that a few of them said they actually released their victims because they were so passive and compliant. So what does that tell us? And, and, and Robert Hansen, how it relates to this case is Robert Hansen later said that he would take some women up and rape them in his cabin. And if they didn't resist, he would then bring them back. So did you ever hear, did you hear about any of that? I did not. I knew that Cindy had gotten away and he had had someone else that uh, had accused him of rape, but that it didn't really go anywhere, uh, you know, legally. Well, that was what, you know, who knows how, if he was telling the truth or not, but he did later say that he did not kill all the women that he transported to his cabin. And that there were some women who apparently were afraid enough or compliant enough, or they went along with some fantasy he had. Uh, I don't know what fantasy this was, that he actually, you know, did rape them, but that he just drove them back to their house and he let them go because they were compliant. So that's so interesting. You almost think with how cowardly he was and how he was as a person, you know, this quiet, mild mannered guy, you would think that the ones that comply would be. I don't know. That seems opposite in my thinking that the fighting ones would be almost scarier to him, you know, like these big, strong women, since he's not a strong person. So that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I, that is not that surprising to me just because he does seem to be a serial killer who had such a rage yeah. in him and it was so compartmentalized. Yeah, you know, his all everybody who knew him said he was so mild mannered, like you said, and so meek, and he didn't raise his voice, and he was so nice and he was so polite, and it really did seem like that this area of his life was where he just let all that rage go. So, I can see in a way how if somebody in any way, shape, or I mean, I think that you are you're going to be his victim no matter what. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's anything anybody could have done consistently, but I can definitely see him being somebody that if somebody put up any resistance at all, that would escalate things for him. And in what you've looked at with him, I read that there was some undiagnosed bipolar and through the years, you know, in the seventies and stuff um, that mental health experts were concerned about him. Did you find anything else as far as other diagnoses? I did come across the bipolar disorder diagnoses and it was in the context of a legal situation he'd been arrested. And so I don't know what to make of that, Alicia. I have to say, I evaluate criminal defendants often and I am always very skeptical when the first time a diagnosis is raised is in the context of a criminal defense. So is it possible? I didn't come across any other evidence of mania or any interviews from friends or family members that indicated he, I mean, bipolar is not something that you, that you can kind of keep under the radar. Typically. Yeah. I was surprised to read that because for everyone to say he, his baseline was just constantly this one note that doesn't fit with a bipolar diagnosis. It doesn't. And so I, you know, again, I wasn't there. I didn't evaluate him. I'm not going to diagnose him or I guess undiagnose him. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, based on, you know, what I, but, but I would say that nothing that I read, you know, after the fact fit with a bipolar disorder diagnosis. 
Well, thank you again for your time, Dr. Johnston. To check out Dr. Joni Johnston's podcast, books, or where you can see her next, be sure to check out her website, Dr. Joni Johnston. That's D-R-J-O-N-I-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N.com. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. <laughs> Same here. And listen, good luck with everything. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Let's give a special shout out for our newest Murder in the Rain Patreon members, Heather M. from New Richmond, Wisconsin, Carly B. from Rockmart, Georgia, and Vanessa A. from Puyallup, Washington. Thanks, guys. We love you. What a goon. <laughs> oh, here we go again. Goon boy. Goon boy. <laughs> <clears throat> Cough break. I was saving that up. Ooh, hot. Oh, I know. That's a good rate. 1983? Yeah. That's like (laughs) (laughs) $50,000. But the officers... But the officers... They were eating the donuts. They didn't know. (laughs) His donuts brought all the cops around. They brought them to the yard like a milkshake. Oh, boy. Continuing to work... Continuing... With the M.O. and bullet casings matching, the law, the law enforcement, you dipshit. I'm a law enforcer. <laughs> landscaping. That's a good one. You're under arrest for having too long of grass. Retired cops that, that do, do landscaping. landscaping. Yeah. For I'd the watch HOA. That show. You can watch them have a heart attack on your lawn. <laughs> I'd watch that reality show. Uh, I didn't save them all. There are endless rules. <clears throat> do you have one? HOA? Yeah. Oof. But I live in an apartment, so I am not in you charge of the You probably have upkeep. one, too. I don't know. I'm more of a big picture guy. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? I don't focus on the little details, man. They were able to create a comprehensive profile of who the F... Who the F did this? <laughs> <laughs> they claimed to have done it in the first place because Robert said it had a fucking shit. From... From... That's not what's written. To... With... While... To, oh, I already said when you said I lost. <laughs> That's life, baby. I have in written. I just. You're being mean. Flying by the seat of my pants. I don't know what's coming out my mouth. <laughs> I'm trying to make that a laugh. If that was your laugh, I would put you down. Yeah. I would take you to the vet and go, she can't. The vet? Yeah. She's got a pig throat. So I brought her here. Put her down. Put her down. Looking through the rings, watches, and necklaces. Necklaces. The rifle found in Robert's house was a match for the rifle that had been... Farted. For a proper fell... Fart. (laughs) If you know someone who is a victim of sexual abuse or you think they might be, please call the hotline 1-800-656-656. Four six seven three. The domestic abuse hotline is one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. And if you know anyone that would need help with a mental health crisis of any sort, the number is one eight hundred seven one six nine seven six nine. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfiefer.com. 
visit us at murderintherain.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.